Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. We're in a week where, once again, reports of sexual abuse have featured heavily in the media, in part as a result of the Everyone's Invited website recording testimonials from abuse survivors at schools and universities. It's therefore very timely that we're being joined today by James Scudamore, whose novel English Monsters, a moving, gripping and disturbing story about friendship, about childhood, but also about abuse, which came out earlier this month. We've got James here today in the bunker. James, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. James, as I mentioned, your novel uh, came out in paperback this month. I think it would be great if we just jump straight in and, and you sort of Set the scene a little, tell the listeners what the novel's about and what kind of themes are explored there. Sure. So the novel is set over a 30-year period. Uh, the protagonist is called Max. He is sent to an English boarding school at the age of 10. Finds it a, a, a huge shock because his parents are working abroad and he hasn't been in the UK for a few years. He is very abruptly thrust into this world of extreme rigidity uh, that characterizes those places and finds the rules bewildering and incomprehensible and is very, very homesick and struggles to fit in and experiences physical violence in the form of punishment from the teachers. Then sort of three years later, he goes off into the world and sort of leaves that system. And then totally by chance, about 10 years later, so when he's about 20, he ends up falling back in with some of the people he was at that school with. Um, and that coincides with revelations coming out in the newspapers that show that there was something more than physical abuse happening at the school. And the school becomes the center of a, of a sexual abuse scandal. He feels a, com- a very complicated cocktail of feelings. And one of which is a sort of survivor's guilt that none of it ever happened to him. And so he, as he reestablishes the, friend, the old friendships from, from his school days, he discovers more and more layers of unpleasantness about what happened at the school. And the novel sort of goes on from there and the, uh, and the repercussions play out over 30 years. And we check in with the characters age 10, age 20, age 30 and age 40 uh, and see how these effects linger on and they, how they never really go away. I described it as as sort of moving, gripping and disturbing. And and genuinely, that's how I found it as a reader. Um, I read it very, very quickly, in spite of all the usual uh, distractions that exist. I found it incredibly powerful. But it it is very, very timely, isn't it? There's always, sadly, there seems to be something in the news about child sexual abuse. And very often it's, it's associated with an educational context and in particular boarding schools. Is this a very English problem? Obviously, you, you've given it the title English Monsters, which, which also is a, is a line, I think, from Henry V, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. These English monsters are what the traitors are referred to in Henry V on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, the people who try to sort of undermine the king. There's a game that is played by my characters at the school called English Monsters, um, which they devise, having been taught that scene about Agincourt. I agree, it is very timely, but when is it not? I mean, it, it, the, the sad thing is that, that, that this stuff just keeps on coming out. And I think it bears saying abuse was rife in all sorts of closed systems in the 70s and 80s, it turns out. You know, there are football clubs, foster homes, state care places, schools of all kinds. The phenomenon isn't limited to boarding schools or to private schools. 
But there's a particular compound toxicity of effects, perhaps, when that closed system also happens to be a private boarding school with all of its connotations of privilege and elitism. Of course. And I think that that is perhaps what I'm exploring in the book. As to the question of whether it is a uniquely English phenomenon, there's something very English about the particular set of circumstances that I have just described. Having said that, the book has just come out in France and it's pushing a lot of buttons there as well, it seems to be, because they're having their own reckoning with all ver- with various different kinds of abuse scandals there as well at the same time. So perhaps it's not a uniquely English phenomenon. I think this would be a good point for me to declare an interest, which is that I attended a boarding school from the age of nine. I'm doing that because then I can tee up the fact that I think you, James, uh, attended a boarding school from the age of 10. To what extent is this book biographical? There are elements in it from my own experience. There's a huge amount that is not autobiographical in this book. It's very much a novel. But there are definitely uh, some of the, the first impressions of being at a place like that are drawn heavily from my own experience, particularly the sort of just the sheer strangeness. So in my case, my father was working for, I mean, it all links so much to old notions of Englishness and Britishness and empire. My father worked for ICI, which as as you may know, stood for Imperial Chemical Industries. Right. It was a company that was very much of the old school and these great behemoths that sent people away on secondments for three or four years at a time every couple yeah. of years. And my father had had that kind of career. He'd spent some time in Brazil before I was born with my mother. Um, I'd been at school in, in Sao Paulo for mm. three years by the time I was sent back to this school. And it only came about because of a sort of Faustian pact created by the company. They said to my father, that if he was worried that I wasn't getting a good, the right education in Brazil, that they would pay for the school fees for several years if if he wanted, if they wanted to send me back to school in the UK. So they found yeah. a place purely by virtue of its proximity to my maternal grandparents. They thought that that would pr- perhaps help in terms of adjustment, but of course, it didn't make the slightest bit of difference. <laughs> it doesn't matter how close they are. You're still imprisoned, right? Yeah, and, um, and that was particularly, in many ways, made it worse because I could see across the valley, I could see my grandparents' house from the school wow. um, and, and be reminded all the time of what I was missing. But it was this, it was, partic- it was just a particularly formative shock for me because the contrast was so extreme. I'd been at a school in Sao Paulo for three years where you played water polo in the afternoons. Weekends, you wore, you know, white Levi's and Hawaiian shirts and went to parties with your friends. Everyone was very beautiful and everyone was very sort of sexually precocious. It was a really fun place to be. And then suddenly one of the bits of the book that is perhaps most faithful to my own experience is Max's arrival at the school, which takes place in a very hard winter. He goes in January of 1987. The school is completely frozen solid it's under the under three or four feet of snow and all the pipes have burst because they because the ancient plumbing of the building fails to cope with the cold snap and all the pupils are being sent to defecate and urinate in the garden which is (laughs) when i arrived at school and you were given a bucket and told to take it out to the walled garden at the back of the school. And there was a, an area that was designated for 
crapping in an area where you had to collect snow, pristine snow to bring back for people to clean their teeth with. No yellow snow. No yellow snow, exactly. So I just let's just remind the listeners that James is describing 1987, not 18 or 1787. That's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think that that's, that was sort of why I felt that this book, in spite of the fact that there is so much boarding school literature, I felt there was a particular angle on it that had perhaps not been explored because one of the key things that changed it was the introduction of the Children's Act, which happened after I was at uh, this particular boarding school. But that, uh, and in fact, the extract I'm going to read from is it, it, it touches on the Children's Act. And I do think that that fact that it was taking place so late is what is what makes it extraordinary and 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 how it sort of i think i was perhaps of the last generation to go to places that were characterized by that extreme violence and corporal punishment which was breathtaking at the time it was such a shock to see these people committing acts of extreme violence on children there's a scene in the novel where uh Max is beaten for having made a reverse charge phone call in a phone box, which was a which was a huge um, you know, no no, unforgivable crime, unforgivable crime to talk to your parents, and and this was uh, it, it's that sort of blend really of the anarchy that characterised those places in in other spheres and the extreme rigidity of those those rules and and that and that and the just the psychopathy of the of the forms of punishment. Which is such a which is was such a throwback, and it does feel extraordinary that it was still going on into the late late eighties and into the nineties when when the Children's Act came into force. Because I also think that there's this sort of truism that is that people talk about in the context of boarding prep schools that very often the masters were all damaged by having been to war, for example. That, that, yeah. that, that's a thing you find a lot. In, in George Orwell's great essay about his own experiences at boarding school, which is called Such, Such Were the Joys, mm. or it, it, it's people who, are, who have been deformed by war. Yeah, and of course, Ro- Roald Dahl also has that sort that's of right. yeah. reasoning, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and, and, you, and you can... Imagine, you know, someone who's sort of perhaps been involved in the liberation of a concentration camp and hasn't had any therapy to cope with the extraordinary trauma that they've experienced. And then they come back and find themselves in charge of a load of annoying children. You can see the haven that they find because there is there's an element of sanctuary there for the teachers, a sort of haven of cream teas and apple scrumping. And yeah. And then they can, and they can settle down into the comforting truths that they're teaching to do with Oxbow Lakes or medieval siege engines. But these are, you know, profoundly damaged and unhinged people, and they handed on that damage to kids who had never had anything to do with the war. And so the war yeah. carried on going for a very long time. But this that that excuse surely can't not not in our generation. It doesn't, it doesn't work, does it? Excuse, excuse can't obtain in 1987. No. <laughs> so what? So I guess what I'm interested in is how does it come to be so self-perpetuating, that culture? I think it would, this is a perfect moment for you to read us a little bit from the, from the book. Okay, so this is a uh, part from the second section of the book, which is when 
my protagonist Max is 20 and he's a piano he's working as a, a sort of jobbing pianist and he ha- he because he falls back in with all these people who've continued to have associations with the school he ends up doing a gig at uh, a school reunion which takes him back there when he hadn't expected ever to go back and it's just after the first revelations have been made in the press about one of the teachers who they had thought was only violent and it turns out that he was also sexually abusive he plays the piano with it with a friend of his called holly who sings so this is when they've just arrived at the reunion they hobnobbed on the north lawn throwing down shadow in the strong summer light a balding man who must have been a pupil about 20 years before me appeared to be in charge he showed us to an upright piano and a microphone in the cloisters Playing at the beginning provided a welcome opportunity to scope things out without having to interact. And since nobody knew Holly, those who passed didn't bother looking at me, imagining us to be a randomly hired act. As we played, my eyes scanned the crowd on the lawn. Familiar faces emerged, lengthened and augmented. We finished to a brief spatter of applause, then began drinking wine at catch-up speed as we skirted the crowd. Holly was still taking in the beauty of the building the light tumbling through the canopy of the cedar tree, the blindsiding first impression of sanctuary and privilege. So this is where you went to school, she said. It explains so much. I went to a lot of schools. Yeah, but this is the one that mattered, isn't it? Dinner was announced and the crowd began funneling into the cloisters to go inside. I took Holly round to the front entrance to give her a quick tour. I showed her the great hall and we walked up to see a couple of dormitories, the iron beds in their serried ranks. It was half term, so the beds were all made up and labelled. It felt simultaneously more dilapidated and more comfortable than I remembered. There were cosier touches throughout, such as artwork by the kids that had been put up in many of the rooms. The most striking change was a payphone bolted to the wall of one of the downstairs corridors. I stared at it, wondering how to convey how unthinkable a sight it was when a familiar voice boomed behind me. Huzzah for the Children's Act! You'd have probably appreciated having access to one of these, eh, Max? Wagstaff wore a white dinner jacket and a red and gold striped bow tie. His hair was greyer and his laughter lines had cut deeper into his face, lending him more Toby Jug amiability than ever. He asked if Holly was my wife, which communicated how fluid his perception of time was. Most of them had been there for decades. However adult we might be now was irrelevant. I was so looking forward to this evening, said Wags. It happens so rarely that we get people back here to let us know what the rest of their lives had in store. My only worry is that this business with Eric will end up tainting the whole thing. We hadn't heard from him at all. He's been living somewhere out east, I think. Could it be Great Yarmouth? And now here he is back to bring us all this unpleasantness. Ghastly, he sighed. I used to argue with him all the time. I told him you can't beat them as much as this. It's not on. And he would back down eventually. It was a struggle, though. But this is about more than beating, though, isn't it? Ugh, said Wagstaff. Awful. Let's not spend the whole night going on about it. It upsets me so much. What a mess. They'd put out candles and hired wine glasses, but the water was served in the school's familiar plastic jugs and tumblers. The adult voices, the smell of booze. Being back was already tinkering with my memories, making the past harder to see. There was a note of defiance in the way people behaved, especially those who had left most recently. A desire, perhaps, to show the place up now they were big enough to defend themselves. I sensed competing undercurrents of declaration. Some seemed to want to make it clear that they despised the school for its grand pretensions. Yet here they were, 
Others strutted in a different way, broadcasting that this was only a staging post in a journey that they were now proudly completing. There's so much just in that passage. And funnily enough, I'm sure a lot of your readers, particularly those who may have themselves experienced boarding school, you get weird memories coming back. And I completely forgotten about the existence of the Children's Act. But I think you and I are the same age, James. And I, yeah. I remember bumping into like the old matron from my school and she was yeah. complaining that the Children's Act had meant that they'd had to segregate the showers. Uh, obviously you know but it was very inconvenient because you used to have all the boys in one big group shower and then now they had to make little barriers and I say that now and it just sounds so awful and sort of you know it it seems like you're lifting a lid on a really weird world and yet I I think I had that conversation without even thinking that it was it was there was anything strange about it at all I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people and and many people who've read the book have kindly been, been in touch to talk about it, there is this real deliberate process of amnesia that takes place where you sort of will yourself to forget how unbelievably strange some of those customs were. And I've had so many people write to me about that. And yes, things like the, the segregation of the showers, that was definitely one of the effects of the of the Children's Act. Just so many other things that are, some things that are eccentric and some things that are incredibly sinister. So you get, for, for example, nobody at my prep school was allowed to bring any of their own food and if you did bring your own food you could be beaten for it if even if it was just a packet of peanuts or a bag of raisins or something yeah however you were allowed to bring a hamster or a gerbil and you were allowed to bring as much food as you wanted for them (laughs) and the reason why you were supposedly not allowed to bring your own food was because it encouraged rats but at the same time, you're encouraged to bring your own rodent and food for it. Food for the rodent. <laughs> just left on the floor next to all the... There was this whole sort of cluster of rodent cages at the bottom of one of the staircases. And the rodents would chow down on all of the seeds and things that they were being fed. And all the crumbs would literally fall down into the heating ducts under the floor where the, the, the rats would feast on them. It didn't make any sense. None of it made any sense. No. And there's this amazing blend of anarchy with terrifying rules. And then there are all the other more sinister things that one looks back on and realizes were completely awful. Like the fact that there were teachers who would bring their own chair during the shower session and sort of settle themselves to spectate, insist on checking in personally inside your game shorts to, to see whether or not you were wearing underpants when you were going out onto the, onto the football field because you weren't supposed to. And then it gets more and more sinister than that, obviously, and goes to very dark places. We must talk about politicians because, as I mentioned, you know, more than a third of our cabinet seem to have been through this strange system. And as you yourself hinted, in weird ways that may not be very healthy, uh, this strange early life trauma seems to help some people uh, sort of prepare themselves for kind of leadership roles later in life, albeit maybe roles where they learn to deal with sort of dishonesty, leading double lives, all kinds of other perhaps uh, negative behaviours. I mean, this is a huge question, but what's your take on the way that these strange childhood institutions, which are frankly abusive, have affected uh, leadership at, at that national level? So I think it all comes down to the question of how you react to 
the fire of being of, of arriving in these places and people either sink or swim don't they i'm mixing yeah. my metaphors there but um and i think the dangerous thing is what you have to become in order to swim in order to in, in order to be to thrive and be successful one of the things that you have to do i think is totally shut down your empathy because that is one possible way of surviving it's a lot to do with the, the, the connection emotional connections to your family being severed at a very early age i think i talked about um the armored self and the strategic survival personality but there's also an element in which the people who thrive most successfully in those environments are the ones who learn to laugh at it and i think and so there's this combination of removal from emotional affect and flippancy puts a sort of extreme flippancy in the face of everything um and then there are all the other things that come along on the sports field that this this idea that you can never ever give up which i think <laughs> it, it's um and it leads to these 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 the, the people emerging with these mechanisms as this combination of bulletproof confidence with blunted empathy and i think that that explains a lot of the characteristics that you see in 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 some of these politicians who were, who were who were educated at private boarding schools and it bears stating that um one of the one of the books that was been published uh that was this a non-fiction book looking into the phenomenon of boarding schools and the abuse that took place uh is by the journalist alex renton and it's called stiff upper lip and it's about his experiences at a school called ashdown house uh which it's worth pointing out was also the alma mater of the prime minister indeed and i understand uh just to sort of conclude that particular story that ashdown house closed in the last year yes well it definitely in close. I don't know whether it's happened or not yet, but yeah. Uh, and I think that's not unrelated to a history of of, of some very you know troubling uh, issues that happened there. That yeah, both the physical abuse and sexual abuse, I believe. Yeah, James, this is something that w- w- we could talk about all day and 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 sort of start trading reminiscences. But um, I think actually uh, where we've got to is a perfect place to stop because you've described in a way that is is painfully accurate, it seems, the psychology of the person running this country and perhaps a class of people that are running this country. So I want to thank you very much for joining us in the bunker. And I want to uh, strongly recommend to the readers your book, which, as I say, I found absolutely gripping. It's definitely not a book for people who are obsessed with boarding schools. It's a book for, for anybody who loves beautiful novels that tell you something about humanity and, and and how we all interact so james thank you very much for joining us thank you very much for having me so listeners be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes you can also back the bunker podcast on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast see you next time The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Rees. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.